All right, guys. Well, 15 the uh, Sunday after that. And so these, these three, and really today's passage in particular, <laughs> is at the heart of the controversy, really, of how you interpret Revelation. So you'll, you'll, you'll see that there's very different ways to interpret some of these texts. Uh, and so Revelation chapter 11 is where we will begin. I want to say yeah. before, before we, we start reading, like, if, if you're used to a certain perspective, um, you know, you might feel like we've got literally horns growing out of our heads um, with some of the things we're going to say. Um, one of the things we have to do when we come to Scripture, and it's, it's no matter our background, no matter, um, you know, how convinced we've been, we always need to check our presuppositions by what the text actually says. That's hard to do sometimes, okay? And this is an in-house issue. Like, you can... Christians can disagree over what we're going to say here today and still be Christian, and you're not questioning someone's faithfulness to God. We're not questioning someone's faithfulness to Christ. We're not, like, if you disagree with, with the position we take, I'm not going to question your desire to be faithful to the Word of God. Um, but one of the hardest things to do is to reevaluate the foundations on which we understand things. And we come to especially the book of Revelation, especially to the issue of eschatology, with so much baggage, just because of evangelicalism, Southern Baptist life, like there's such an emphasis on what we're going to, the, the position we're going to disagree with, the pre-tribulational rapture, the dispensational perspective, that is such the air that is breathed, the water that is drank, it's like trying to convince a fish that it's, it's in water, like, like it's, rethinking your position on this um, can be very tough to do because so much of our reflex is the dispensational perspective that we take this completely literally. This is all talking about future events and stuff like that. So we, we have to be willing to pull the covers up, to pull the, you know, to, to go down deep, to pull the, the rug up, if you will, and, and actually examine the foundations and be willing to reevaluate how we approach a, a, a passage like we're going to look at in a book like Revelation. We, we have to be willing to do that. There are a few key issues in the Christian life that make us do that to the level that we have to do it with this. One of the biggest ones for me before the eschatology issue was the sovereignty of God and human freedom. We come front-loaded to just assume um, a, a specific particular view of human free will, um, and even when the Scriptures are shouting something different, we don't see it because we, we are so, it's so easy to just rest on what we already think we know. And so when we are willing to let the Word of God truly examine us and, and open ourselves up to the whole of what it says and maybe a different way of looking at it, not questioning whether or not it's true, not questioning um, that whether it's the Word of God, but maybe there's a better way to understand it, okay? That's hard to do, but we've got to be willing to do that. We've got to be willing to do that with humility, um, with grace, and you know what? Eschatology is a very important issue, but if you don't get it 100% right, it does not affect your standing with God one bit, okay? Like, so let, let there be some, some rest in our souls over the fact that we're, there's going to be some disagreement. We up here might nuance a few things, maybe a little differently, even though our overall position is exact, exactly, you know, very, is, is generally the same. Like, 
it's okay. Like, it, we, we have to take the heat out of this discussion. Like, we're going to be passionate and convinced about the, what we're going to share with you guys, but it doesn't need to be a source of, like, bitter contention um, to where we're questioning, you know, how can you say you love the Word of God if you don't take it exactly like th- that, that? That is the last place we want to go with this. That is the, the wrong attitude. Um, and so we have to check that, and we have to check our our presuppositions, and let Scripture rewire us if need be. So, go ahead. Oh, that, that's excellent. And just to, just to kind of repeat something we said last week, which is sort of the core issue of the discussion or the debate, is uh, dealing with how symbolically or literally we take large portions of the book of Revelation. So again, what we're arguing is when you're reading history in the Bible, you take it literally. When you're reading the, the, the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, you take the, the events absolutely at face value, literally. The, Jesus died, he rose, all those things. But when you're dealing with poetry or apocalyptic, you don't read them with the same kind of uh, literalism that you would read, say, a biography or a history or something like that. And knowing the genre is, is crucial. So often we want to read Revelation like it's written, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Like with the same kind of direct literalism that you would expect. And so um, you, you end up getting very strange readings if you do that. But again, we're arguing that the first verse of Revelation uses three or four phrases from Daniel 2, reminding us of highly symbolic visions as, as, as Daniel starts his book. You remember the seven spirits of God are symbolic for the Holy Spirit. The two-edged sword coming out of Jesus' mouth is a symbol for the power of the word of Jesus. The seven lampstands. Uh, represent the seven churches, the seven stars, the angels, the lion and the lamb both represent symbolically Jesus. The 144,000, I argue, and I know this is more controversial last week, I, I argue the 144,000 uh, is symbolic for the true people of God. And that's really contested. And today is, is no less contested. So again, the beginning of the passage starts off, let me reread the beginning. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Just those first four verses. Lots of controversy here. So the, the more literal reading is just obvious. Like you're talking about a literal temple in Jerusalem and you're talking about two human beings, two men who are kind of like Moses and Elijah figures who prophesy for three and a half years or 1,260 days and they are like two olive trees or two lampstands before the Lord. And you can take that very literally. The Lord has measured the temple. The outer courts are trampled by the Gentiles. And uh, you can take, so the, okay, not to lose everybody, the, the, the partial preterist view, this is the view of the post-millennialist they would say that this already happened. Remember, every, almost everything in Revelation has already happened. So they would say this happened in 70 AD when, for about three and a half years, Jerusalem was sieged during the Jewish war, and they trampled it. The Gentiles trampled the city underfoot, and everybody was, was basically killed and put out of their misery at that time. That's one reading of it. I think it's probably the least likely, but that, that is one reading of it. The other reading is the more dispensational future view, which is that during the seven years of tribulation, for three and a half of those years, exactly what you hear is going to happen literally in Jerusalem. That the temple right now, if, you've, you know, if you're at Jerusalem, if you've been there, if you see pictures, you have the, uh, the Dome of the Rock and you have the, 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 uh, the Islamic, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an Islamic, Islamic mosque and there's also the gigantic Dome of the Rock with the gold dome on it, where the temple used to be. If this is literal future, the idea would be that that temple would be knocked down one day 
with some kind of incredible political animosity between Jewish people, Christians, and, and, and Islam in particular, and there would be a new Jewish temple rebuilt on that same spot where Solomon's temple was, and that these events will literally take place during a three-and-a-half-year period where the, the place is persecuted, but God still protects part of the building, and there's two witnesses who are preaching during those three-and-a-half years, and then they are eventually killed. So that, that's the way most Baptists would take this view, is it's a future literal temple that's going to be stomped underfoot, and there's going to be two literal witnesses who are going to be killed. They're going to be literally raised from the dead after three and a half days, kind of like Jesus, and they're going to ascend to heaven in the spirit of kind of Moses and Elijah type figures. And again, people who believe this view, like you said, Greg, they believe it because they believe the Bible and they want to be faithful mm -hmm. to Scripture. We just simply, we don't disagree with them because we think the Bible's wrong. We don't think that's what this text is actually teaching. We think that Revelation is highly symbolic and we should not assume the most immediately obvious um, su surface reading is what is literally happening here. So let me begin, and I'll hand it off to Greg and then to Papa Fred as we work through this. Let, let me just begin with some points here on why I wouldn't take this literally. Let's start with the phrase, the temple of God, right there in, in verse 1. The temple of God. Rise and measure the temple of God. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. Because, remember, we, we interpret Scripture with Scripture, scripture right? <laughs> and we let the clearer passages shed light on the less clear passages. So turn to chapter 3, verse 12. Let's see uh, the other time that the phrase temple of God is used in this book. Look at 3.12. And he's talking to a local church here. This is the church of Philadelphia. 3.12, this is Jesus speaking to the church in Philadelphia. The one who conquers, that is the Christian who endures faithfully to the end, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now, do you hear that this is not literal? Do you think we're actually going to become pillars in a temple? We're going to be frozen stiff? No, of course, this is non-literal language. And he uses the phrase temple of God to refer to the people of God, the church of God. It's temple of God. The temple of my God is symbolic in revelation for the church. It's not referring to a building here, and it's not referring to a building in chapter 11. It's, a, it's symbolic language for God's people. We are the temple of the living God. In fact, the other times, for instance, Paul uses the phrase temple of God, Paul always uses it non-literally. 1 Corinthians 13, we are the temple of God, right? The foundation is Christ. He uses it again in other parts of his letters. But the, the temple of God language, it's used about 10 times. Virtually all of them are used non-literally in the whole of the New Testament, including Revelation. So, is that a clue? when we read Revelation 11, that we are dealing with a symbol for God's church rather than a literal building? The answer, I think, is yes. We're dealing with a symbol for, for God's people. Uh, Greg? Well, another, another interesting point on this is the time that it's taken literally, that phrase, the temple of God, is actually Jesus' false accusers yes. because they mistake what he said. You remember in John chapter 2 mm -hmm. when he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. He was referring to what? The, that temple, architectural temple that Herod built? No, he's referring to the temple of his own body. And so, but when they're accusing him, they said he's going to destroy the temple of God and they meant it, the literal physical architectural building. Um, and so it's interesting that the phrase, the temple of God, when it's actually referred to the building is being used by those in the mouths of those who were falsely accusing Jesus of saying something he didn't say. So they were the ones using it wrongly. Yeah, the, the New Testament use of that phrase, temple of God, refers to the people of God, refers to the body of Jesus, or in Revelation, it can refer to God's temple in heaven. Um, and so we, we again, it's, it's a symbol because what, what is the, the point of the temple? It's the place where God dwells in the midst of his people. We could make the case, we don't have time to do it, that the garden, was a, the garden of Eden was a proto-temple, an, an early 
shadowing of a temple-like place, like all the, the, the stones and the stuff that's in the garden is what you see woven into and carved in Israel's temple. Um, the temple is where God dwells with his people. So it, it's, it's a, a powerful image and symbol um, of God in the midst of his people. Um, Jesus, when, when he came, John 1.14, the word became flesh. And, you know, we say, I'll say dwelt, but it literally tabernacled. He pitched his tent like the tent in the wilderness that got the Shekinah glory came down and the presence of God entered in and the people couldn't go in. Like Jesus literally Shekinahed, and I'm making a word up here, he Shekinahed among us. And so um, this word for temple in the New Testament, it is amazing that it does not, the, the authors and, and the right people never use it to refer to a physical building. They always refer to God's temple in heaven, the church or the body uh, the physical body of, of Jesus. And so thinking here um, in chapter 11, let me flip back there. You've got this image of the temple. He says, measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Let's focus on that word for measure. Um, you go back to Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 40 through 48. It's the end of the book where Ezekiel has this vision of this huge, massive, end times temple. He talks a lot about measuring. Measuring is synonymous with protecting. If you're measured, you're protected, okay? And so that's going to be something that's key to understanding what's going on here because he says, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Verse two, don't measure the court outside. So whatever is being measured is protected by God. Whatever is not being measured is not protected by God. And this is where we have to be very, very careful here because again, I think once we say this, hopefully it'll at least seem plausible, but it's going to sound crazy on the surface because, again, we're not used to thinking or speaking like this. Um, the, the part that's measured is a reference to God's spiritual protection of his people. It, it's God protects his people spiritually through great suffering, through great persecution, and even through death. And see, if we keep the rest of the New Testament in mind, let Scripture interpret Scripture clear parts, the unclear parts. Look real quickly at Romans chapter 8. We know these verses, and some of the verses we're about to read are some of the most precious verses in our Bibles to us, and they should be. But they're also laying down a principle for understanding something that, of how God works in the midst of our suffering. Start with verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Pause. All the stuff he just said, well, any of this separated from God is all stuff that happens to our bodies, the, the external part of us, the physical part of us, okay? Can, can any stu- anything that happens to our bodies separate us from the love of God? He even goes on to say, it seems like we're just sheep for the slaughter. What is Paul's response? Look at verse 37. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Think about the significance of what he said. You can get absolutely destroyed physically and still actually be the one winning the victory. That flips our thinking on its head. Because we're so used to tying things so closely together. Well, if you're beaten physically, you must have lost. But what did Jesus himself say? Don't fear him who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell forever. And also, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Jerry quotes this all the time, and for good reason. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, look at verse 7 and then verses 16 
through 18. Give you a second to turn there. Again, think of the difference between spiritual wholeness, spiritual protection versus physically all kinds of bad stuff can happen. Verse 7, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show what? That the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So externally, we are fragile, breakable, destroyable things. But internally, it's something totally different. Look at 16 through 18. It says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so the whole point of that is there's a mindset in the New Testament that that pushes us to see suffering, to see persecution from two angles. From an earthly, physical angle, it seems like you lose. The church is being defeated. The church is being conquered. But when you look at it from the spiritual angle, it's actually the exact opposite. All the hardships we're going through are actually preparing something far greater for the future. When, when we suffer, when we die for, our, for the gospel, for our faithful witness to Christ, we're actually overcoming the enemy. Even though he's killing us, we're actually defeating him. And so that's the mindset we have to bring when we read Revelation 11, because again, you've got one part that's protected, the spiritual part, the physical part um, is the court outside that's not protected, corresponds to our bodies. Do not measure the court outside, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. And again, the holy city, like what in the world, the holy city, we're talking about the temple. But if you go all the way to Revelation, we're not going to turn there right now. You go to Revelation chapter 21, the the holy city is called the people of God, the bride. And so you start to see, and this is why we said before, the symbols and the images, um, they mix up in Revelation. We're not meant to try to to draw what we're seeing because it would be a freakish, weird-looking thing. Uh, All of it's true at the same time from different angles. Um, The city and the temple are the people. Okay, at the same time. And we've got to let Revelation say that to us. Um, thoughts? Yeah, so with, I really do think that if, if you're hearing this for the first time, you may go, ah, okay, I, I can see that the principle is biblical, but I'm not sure I'm all the way convinced yet. And I, listen, I would say stick with us for a while because I think this is one of those arguments that cumulatively, cumulatively grows more persuasive the more you hear, mm-hmm. the, the more you look at this. But here's what I'd say. The next three weeks, we're doing 11 today, 12 next week, and 13 the next week. These three chapters are all symbolic visions of this same exact reality. So chapter 11 uses two different symbolic visions to describe the persecution and the protection of God's people. One is the temple is both measured and protected, but the outer courts are trampled for three and a half years. That's a a sign of God protecting spiritually his church while they're being persecuted. The next metaphor or symbol in the same chapter is two witnesses. We're going to argue these two witnesses also represent the whole church. They're going to say, what? Where is that? We'll argue for that in a second. The two witnesses represent the church. And guess what? The two witnesses are hated, persecuted, but they're also protected and successful and they're killed, but yet resurrected. So you have, a, again, the symbol of the church faithfully witnessing to God, but also being persecuted, but also triumphing despite persecution. Then chapter 12 for next week, you have the church now spoken of as a woman giving birth to Jesus. And the woman is chased by the dragon into the wilderness being persecuted. Who is the woman? It's the people of God. It's the church of God. We, are, we flee into the wilderness for how long? Three and a half years. 
When do the three and a half years begin? When the baby ascends to heaven. So at the ascension, let me actually show you the verses so you don't just take my word for it. Look at, look at 12 just to get this ahead of time so we can see this. This woman gives birth to Jesus, which represents not Mary, but the people of God. This is verse 5. 12, 5. She gave birth to a male child, that's Jesus, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Clearly, that's Jesus' ascension. And the woman, that's the church, fled into the wilderness, think like the 40 years in the wilderness analogy, where she has a place prepared for God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, do you see the 1,260 days... The 42 months and the three and a half years and the whatever other metaphors there are for this, um, these, these meta- 42 months, these, these metaphors, the three and a half year metaphor, when does it begin in Revelation? At the ascension of Jesus. I mean, I don't know how else it could be said. Verse 5 says the boy is caught up to heaven. The child is caught up to heaven. That's the ascension of Jesus in verse 5. Verse 6, then immediately, there's no, there's no uh, time gap. There's no time gap. Jesus goes to heaven. The woman, the church, flees from persecution into the wilderness for how long? 1,260 days. This is not literal. It's referring to the entire time between Christ's ascension and the end of the persecution of the church, which is Christ's second coming. So why three and a half years? Well, if you're here for Daniel, three and a half years was the crucial time when that king Antiochus Epiphanes persecuted the Jews from 167 to 164 BC. It took on like the... If I say, I mean, this is going to sound crazy, but if I say the first two years after 9-11 was kind of like 1776 all over again, do you know what I mean? Patriotism was exploding after 9-11. If someone has not lived in our country and they hear me say the first two years after 9-11 were like 1776, they'll think I'm talking gibberish, right? Because they don't have the cultural background. When Jews hear three and a half years, it's like you hearing 1776. Every Jew knew about Hanukkah. They still do. They knew about the Maccabean Revolt, which ended with Hanukkah, and they knew about Antiochus IV killing Jews for being faithful to God's law for three and a half years. That's like as famous as anything you can imagine in, Jewish, in the Jewish mind. When John picks up that language of three and a half years, he uses it for what? The time between the boy going to heaven, Jesus going to heaven, and the entire time of the persecution of the church. Why use a symbol for three and a half years that's going to last 2,000 plus years? The answer is not the amount of time, but the kind of time. The kind of time is what? When the bad people are persecuting God's people and they are holding on by a thread, but God is faithful to preserve his remnant while they are being brutally treated in this world. That's what three and a half years symbolizes in the, in the mind of Revelation. And so when we hear about the church being trampled for three and a half years and also being preserved, that's the church age. When we hear about two witnesses proclaiming for 1,260 days, that's the church age. And when we hear about the woman being persecuted by the dragon for 1,260 days, That's the church age. We are the woman. The dragon is Satan. He's still real in this world and aggressive. And then we'll also see chapter 13. Real quick, look at chapter 13. Remember the beast? The first two verses of chapter 13, he has the attributes of all the four beasts from Daniel 7. Ten horns, like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion. And look at verse 5. The beast was given dominion. Now, by the way, the, the beast starts with Rome at the time of Christ, right? The beast starts with Rome at the time of Christ. And it goes all the way till the time of Antichrist. The beast is all throughout this era. Rome and beyond. Rome and beyond. Rome and beyond. And so look how long the beast reigns. Verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for how long? 42 months. That's three and a half years. This is symbolic language. It's not literally half of a seven-year period of tribulation. It's a symbol for the entire church age. So follow me here on this. This is so crucial to the argument. Chapter 11 gives us two symbolic visions of the church being persecuted and protected for three and a half years, the church age. 
Chapter 12 gives us another symbolic vision of the church being persecuted and protected for three and a half years, the church age. Then chapter 13 gives us another picture of the church being persecuted and protected for three and a half years. And these are all different camera angles of the same thing. Revelation is not teaching any kind of radically new doctrine. This is kind of basic stuff. We are persecuted and protected by a sovereign and good God, while Satan and the beast and, and false prophets are trying to target and hurt God's people. And so that, that's, that's 11, 12, and 13 is telling the same story from three different portraits or three different camera angles. And uh, let's jump back to chapter 11 to these two witnesses. One thing that, that uh, as I was listening to these guys, uh, there's another word that I, I want to interject, and that's called an allusion uh, or an implied or indirect reference. Uh, four books, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Psalms account for about half the, uh, the, uh, these allusions. They aren't direct allusions like uh, Greg mentioned the, Ezekiel measuring the temple. Goodness gracious, that took, what, eight, nine chapters almost mm -hmm. to the end of the book. Uh, that's not exactly what we're talking about, but it was a, a, an allusion to protect the people. That's what it was all about. Zechariah 2.1 talks, he's given a measuring rod to measure the temple. Again, it's not a direct reference, but it's an allusion. It's a, an indirect reference. So all of Revelation goes back to the Old Testament for its references. Yes, yes. So let, let me back up what, what Fred's saying there. Look at the witnesses real quick. Verse 3. I'm going to try to argue these witnesses are the church. Verse 3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. That symbolizes mourning. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. Okay, turn to chapter 1, verse 20. I think Greg mentioned this last week, I think, but look at 120 of Revelation. The last verse of chapter 1. Now, if I can remind you of what Greg said last week. When Revelation tells you what a symbol means, you're, you're fortunate because it doesn't always happen. But when, they ex when John explicitly says, this stands for that, we better take notice. John tells us that lampstands are not physical lampstands. They have a, they have a sim symbolic value. Look at 120. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and here it is, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Lampstand represents church in Revelation. This is very important. So when John says lampstand, we should immediately know, he told us in 120, lampstand is symbolic language, not for a literal menorah, it's, it's symbolic language for a church, for the church. And, and so when we go to chapter 11, we have two witnesses who are called the two lampstands. We should already be thinking this is symbolic for the church. Greg, can you pick it up there? Yeah. Um, so I'll grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for the 1260 days. Two olive trees, two lampstands standing before the Lord of all the earth. Um, a couple of things. I mean, on, on the surface of it, it should be obvious. There's no, like, you know, the use of simile here, like they're like two olive trees or they're like two lampstands. They are these things. So they're... This is where, why we say let the symbolism um, have the day on this because otherwise we have to picture these two real human beings who in some weird freakish way in the spiritual realm are both olive trees and lampstands at the same time. And breathe fire. And breathe fire. Um, something to keep in mind in Revelation, okay, is the stuff that comes out of mouths is always symbolic of power to, to speak truth, to kill, to injure, to, to make sick, like... 
that what comes out of mouths in Revelation is not to be taken literally, but to communicate the power of, of, of words, the power that is inherent in the things that we say. Because what are these two, two things that are mentioned? They're two witnesses. And they're going to do what? They're going to prophesy. They're going to speak God's truth. They're going to speak God's truth. And if you remember, prophecy is not just foretelling the future. It's foretelling in the present to the people and to the world what they need to hear at that moment. So prophecy is not just predicting the future. It's preaching to the present. Okay. Um, Old Testament, that's true. It's true here. So they're going to be preaching the, the truth of God. They're, they're Christ's witnesses, and they're going to be preaching the truth about Jesus. Now, the fact that they are clothed in sackcloth, that if anyone would harm them, fire comes from their mouths, consumes their foes, says they have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall, um, and, and they can turn waters into blood. This is verse 6, strike the earth with every kind of plague. There are two individuals, regardless of your interpretation of this, that is universally agreed upon that these, who these two, these two witnesses are meant to kind of bring to mind is Moses and Elijah. Because what did Moses do? If you think verse 6, through, God through Moses struck Egypt with the plagues, turning water to blood and all of that. And what did Elijah do? He said, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. He called fire down from heaven to consume the soldiers that would come and then the burnt offering when he contested with the prophets of Baal. But here's something interesting. Kevin DeYoung pointed this out. I knew Elijah in the three and a half years, you know, the prophet... Uh, you know, it's not going to rain. Did you know in Numbers 33, as Israel was led by Moses, do you know how many stopping points they had on the way to the promised land from Egypt? Get this, 42. That is incredible. That is incredible to think about right there. 42 stopping points from Egypt to the promised land. And again, they're in the wilderness they're not in the promised land. They're on the way. They've got adversaries all about. They're trusting in God to supernaturally protect them until they get to where they need to go. Um, so you've got Moses with a 42 reference. You've got Elijah with 42 months, three and a half years. How long do these guys prophesy? 1,260 days, which is 42 months. Okay, this is absolutely huge. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets, which is God's testimony to his people and to the world. And ultimately, the law and the prophets are testifying to Jesus. Because remember, Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is revealed as his human, you know, the, the human covering, if you will, is pulled back and they see him in his glory. And who shows up to talk with him? Moses, Moses and Elijah. And what does the father say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's like just further testimony. Moses and Elijah, their purpose ultimately is to point us to Jesus. And so these two witnesses in invoking in our minds or evoking in our thoughts, Moses and Elijah, the 42 stops, the 42 months, they're, they're, they're preaching the word, teaching the word, testifying. They, this, this is the church, the, the faithful remnant of the church witnessing to the world. And here's the thing. The, the witness of the church will succeed. It will be completed. And it's not until the end of that that the Antichrist is enabled and empowered to overcome them and kill them. Because we know, remember, from 1 John chapter 2, the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, is already in the world. John says, you've heard that Antichrist is coming, but I tell you, many Antichrists 
have come. And that's the way it's going to be until the final one comes at the end. And he cannot shut the church up until God says we're done. That's excellent. And again, one of the reasons why we think that these are not just two men who are prophesying is because they prophesy for the three and a half years, right? It says that right there in, uh, where's the verse? Verse three, mm-hmm. by two witnesses, 1260 days, they prophesy. Now remember, in chapter 12, the three and a half years begins when Jesus ascends. That's crucial, right? The three and a half years begins in 12, five, and six. When this child is caught to heaven, the three and a half years, the countdown clock starts on the three and a half years, not literal, but symbolically years. And then chapter 13 tells us the three and a half years begins with Rome, the beast, and it doesn't end until the Antichrist period, the time when the final beast is destroyed. So this three and a half years has to be the entire church age. Which two people have been prophesying, two human literal people have been prophesying for 2,000 years? Answer is zero, because it's not literally referring to two people. If they were prophesying for the three and a half years, they would have to be prophesying from the beginning of Christ's ascension all the way until Christ's return, and no one lives that long. So we're clearly not dealing with a literal period of time. We're dealing with a symbol for God's people. In the Old Testament, every charge should be established by at least how many witnesses? Two or three witnesses. That was all over the Bible. That's why God represents the church as two witnesses in the vein of, a, of Moses and Elijah, law and prophets, and they are, they are the ones who are to testify to the whole earth. And that's why when they're persecuted, the whole earth sees them. If you look, at, uh, look with me at verse, uh, where is that? Verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. And uh, for three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their bodies and refuse to let them be placed in tombs, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. So again, using highly symbolic language, we had three and a half years, the church age. What's this three and a half days? That's different. These two witnesses are killed, and their bodies lie on the street of Sodom, Egypt, Jerusalem, this symbolic way of speaking about fallen humanity that hates God. Clearly symbolic language. He says symbolic. The city of man is opposed to Christ and his bride, and they persecute him. What's described here is, Greg was just talking about this, this is the final appearance of, I believe, the Antichrist. This is the very end of history where the church has been persecuted the whole time, But for these last three and a half days, the church is practically driven underground. The church is going to be overwhelmingly persecuted right before the return of Christ. This is talked about in 2 Thessalonians. This is talked about in Daniel 11. This is talked about in Daniel 7. This is not just here, but this confirms that same idea. The the idea being here that the church will, at the very end of history, be persecuted across the world in a way that we've never seen before. And they'll be practically, metaphorically killed. Their body will lie on the street for three and a half days. They will be, they will be overwhelmed by persecution, and Christ will, will bring triumph at the end. Papa Fred? What does this passage say? In those? The wicked here are celebrating. They're, they're happy. There will be a hatred of Christ and of his people until the end. And, and that's the only way to look at it. Uh, we, we've got to fight being attracted by lust of the world. We've got to fight the tendency to want to go over to the dark side because we're going to be opposed. The church of Jesus Christ is going to be opposed to the end. Um, And then, of course, uh, he mentions here that uh, Carl Truman, a guy we know that spoke out against some uh, uh, homosexual-type 
uh, book or something like that and was criticized for it and that type of thing. So, and Carl Truman is a pretty erudite, sharp guy. And, and so, no matter what we say or do, whether we quote the book or, or our witnesses, we're going to be criticized. Uh, Billy was telling me about uh, being, uh, sharing with some friends of his recently and, and how he they was just flat out rejected. So we shouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. No, I think, I think it's important, guys. Look, look at verse 10. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry in exchange. I mean, this is like a Christmas, you know, white elephant thing, man. We, we got presents coming. We finally shut these folks up. I mean, you know, it's often been said, and, and I'm, I'm trying not to get on, on a soapbox here, but if the church would just be the church, our society wouldn't be in the predicament that it's in today. No, when the church is the church, the world hates us. Like, that, like what we experience in the U.S. is an anomaly from history. We've got to keep that in mind. Are we thankful for it? Absolutely. Do I want it? Do I want to lose it? No. But if the church is the church, the world is not going to be applauding us and saying, wow, you're so like Jesus. They're going to hate us. They're going to want to shut us up. They're going to want to get rid of us. And when the, whatever it is, the protection that God removes, because God knows when our testimony is done, they are going to come all guns blazing to do everything they can to shut the church up and get rid of the church. So if we're going to be faithful to God, we should expect persecution and be surprised by acceptance that is so huge um, when it comes to this the world is going to be happy they're going to feel relieved when the church is conquered by the beast just just to give a sneak preview here of the future so when you hear about the battle of armageddon i believe this is symbolic language for the same moment this is when the world is tricked by Satan into all teaming up together to come against the city of God. It's, it's not referring to an actual battle in Megiddo, north, uh, east of, northwest of Jerusalem. But we're not talking about that. When it says that the blood will, will flow you know, hundreds of miles in one direction up to a horse's bridle, that's not literal language. That, that's ridiculous. I mean, I'm not making fun of someone who t- takes it literally, but to, to, to think of blood like that is not what John's getting. It's, it's this apocalyptic literature. It's describing to the world gathering around Jerusalem using metaphorical language to describe the world opposing the church and that the idea that the whole world teams up against the church is this last three and a half days when the two witnesses are killed or when the woman is nearly killed by the dragon mm-hmm. or when the mark of the beast shows up and the, the beast is attacking anyone who doesn't have that mark. These are all symbols saying basically the same thing, which is at the very end of history when Antichrist arrives, the church will be brutally treated by the world and at the last second... Uh, Jesus will arrive. He will kill the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth. He will bring to nothing the appearance of his coming. And the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Christ. He will flip it around in a moment. And what looks like a total loss will turn into com- complete victory. Yeah, it's, it's important, too, to, um, to understand. I, I've already kind of mentioned this. Um, but this is going to tie into, when we actually talk about the millennium, that this isn't unrelated. Um, Satan is restricted to a large degree right now. Um, Jesus said in John chapter, uh, John chapter 12, you know, the famous passage, and I, when I'm lifted up, will draw all people to myself. The, immediately preceding that, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out, exercised. So at the cross in the, the resurrection and ascension, in a sense, Jesus exercised Satan from the world. Like, like when he cast demons out of people, in a sense, he cast Satan out of the world. 
Now, we know that's not a complete removal. Why? Because Satan's still here. But something fundamental happened at the cross, resurrection, and ascension such that the gospel can now go to every nation and Satan can no longer keep the nations in darkness no matter how hard he tries. Why do you think of all the religions that Christianity is always the one that most governments don't want coming in? Because Satan is doing everything he can to keep the gospel out. He's doing everything he can and he knows that for now he's impotent. He knows that for now he's impotent to do so. But at some point down the road, God is going to allow him to be re-empowered to have that effect and that that deception over the nations such that the nations once again are going to be shrouded in darkness and come against God and his people. But not until that time. Again, Satan is at work in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is in the world, but they are being restrained until the very end when they're let loose to give it everything they got, and then even that ultimately will fail and bring about the second coming of Christ. Right, we talked about that, that in our table discussions Thursday night, mm-hmm. uh, Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame mm-hmm. by triumphing over them uh, in them. Yes, yeah. and again, this is, this is uh, jumping ahead to a later discussion toward the end of the summer, but... The idea that Satan is in some real sense bound right now. Jesus says, you can't plunder a strong man's house until you what? Bind the strong man. So when Jesus died on the cross, in a real sense, he bound and put Satan to shame. He bound him in the sense that now he can no longer deceive all the nations. The gospel will be successful to breach every people group across the world, and then the end will come. So in a sense, Satan is restrained. Second Thessalonians, you don't have to turn there, but it says, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may re- be revealed in his proper time. This is the man of lawlessness, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when... And then the lawless one, this is the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. But do you hear that? Satan is wanting to bring the man of lawlessness out right now. He wants him to be on the scene right now. But there's something restraining him. What it is is a debate. But there's something restraining, and ultimately it's God, is restraining this, this Antichrist figure. The ultimate persecution of the church is being held at bay. And there's a day coming when the restrainer is going to be taken out of the way by God. And when the restrainer is removed, then Satan will inspire this Antichrist figure to bring that ultimate three-and-a-half-day death that ultimate Armageddon where the whole world is around the church and persecuting it, that moment is in the future, and Satan's nipping at the heels to get that moment to come. He wants that moment now. Satan is being restrained, and eventually that moment will, will come to pass. And in that, in that sense, his restraint will be removed for, right. for a brief period, and then the final judgment will arrive on the scene at that time. Okay, we are almost done. Let's go back to Revelation 11 and just kind of wrap up here. There's a lot more that could easily be said here, but let's look at the very end of the chapter. Remember how we've been arguing that the... the in this book, the, the world ends a lot of times because we, we circle back around, we recapitulate. Here the world ends in chapter 11 very clearly. We reach the end of the world, 11.15. Every time you reach a seventh, you reach the end of the world. The seventh seal, seventh trumpet, seventh bowl always takes you to the end of the world. Let's see this one, 11.15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. This is the last trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying... The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Does that sound like the end of the world? Yeah, it sounds like the kingdom has come. The the world has become Christ's fully. He's taken over, verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. It's already here. The nations raged. 
but your wrath came. He's already judged them. And the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. I'll just tell you, whenever in, I look this up, in Revelation, when you see lightning, thunder, and earthquake in the same verse, it's the end of the world. You can look at the other times it happens. End of 16, I think the end of, I have to look them up. I've, I've got them written down. But whenever you see lightning, thunder, and earthquake together, it's the end of history. So 15 to 19 of chapter 11 is the end of the world. Now, do you see why we're arguing this is the whole church age? The two witnesses in the church are trampled but protected for three and a half years. The Antichrist is released and kills the church for three and a half days. Final persecution. Jesus comes and brings judgment. His kingdom then takes over the whole earth. The dead are judged. And now God's kingdom has taken over the world, and it ends with final judgment scene. So chapter 11 covers all of church history from the ascension of Jesus until the new heavens and new earth in miniature form. And chapter 12 will do basically the same thing. 13 will do basically the same thing. In chapter 16, the world ends again. In chapter 19, it ends again. In 20, it ends again. And then 21, it's the final new creation. No more ending again. 21 and 22 is the final state uh, in eternity. Greg, a last comment, and can you pray for us? Um. I'll end with what the book ends with. It says, even so, come Lord Jesus. Like, we should read this and want Jesus to come back. Like, it should fuel our desire to see him for his, for his, his final unveiling, his final revelation when he comes in power and glory on the white horse, ready to judge, ready to slaughter his enemies. Um, we should look forward to that day. I think Vody Bauckham might have said that's his favorite portrait of Jesus, or one of them, mm. um, because we're so used to the gentle Jesus. But when we think about the, the kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of our Christ, that means Christ comes back and all his enemies are slayed, his people are vindicated, his kingdom is established, new heavens, new earth, all of that. Like that that's where it gets so much better for us for the rest of forever. Um, and so we should come to a passage like this, and we should say, even so, come Lord Jesus. And so let's pray with that in mind. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, wow, uh, what a lot... Uh, to take in for these few minutes. But I pray, Lord, that you will help us very seriously consider uh, what your word says and how it intends to be read. Uh, Lord, that right now we are in this 42-month period, this three-and-a-half-year period, this 1,260 days in which as your people we are testifying, we are proclaiming your truth to a world, and we know that that truth will save many, but it will also bring opposition from many. And Lord, may we be faithful until the end because that is the theme of the New Testament. It's the theme of Revelation. He who endures to the end will be saved. This is the endurance and perseverance of the saints. Lord, may we continue to seek you and make you known to the world around us until in your time you say our witness is finished. And Lord, even then when things get even harder for that shorter period of time, God, we know there is vindication. We know that when Jesus comes back, all our enemies will hit, hang their heads in shame and that we will be accepted fully forever with you. We will shine with you. We will be with you. Um, never to experience persecution again. Never to experience death again. That's our hope. That's our promise. And so we do say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. I know we're done, but I, I, I want to add one last comment. Sorry to do this. Uh, if you remember from Daniel, remember Daniel 9, the 70 weeks 
that really difficult chapter, I mean, that's really hard to understand. Remember, the Messiah is cut off and has nothing in the middle of the last week. Remember the last seven years? In the middle of that last seven weeks, the Messiah is cut off and has nothing. He dies. Animal sacrifice is ended. And what's left until the end of history is three and a half years. That's why we argue that's symbolic language. That last week is symbolic for the church age. That three and a half years is what Revelation is referring to. All right, we will stop there. We'll pick up with chapter 12. Lord.